rumor, a currently circulating story or report of uncertain or questionable truth. This is Rumors of Grace, where I talk to people rumored to have found beauty and truth in broken and uncommon places. Well, welcome to another episode of Rumors of Grace. Uh, I have the honor to talk to today Alexander John Shia. Alexander, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Bob. I love the name of this podcast. I think it's just a <laughs> fabulous title. Anyway, it draws me in. Good, it's a delight to be here on, Thank on you. what a cold day uh, where I am. And where are you calling from? Um, today I'm in San Antonio, Texas, which uh, this Arctic air has moved down the middle of the country and has all of us shivering. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I happen to be, I'm not in Nashville today. I'm actually in uh, New York, uh, White Plains, just outside the city. And I'm looking at some beautiful snow with the sun glimmering on it. So it's, it's, fun, it's fun to look at, but I'm sure um, it's not fun to be in for too long. No, no. So, so uh, you are the author for those of uh, those of us who are listening who are not familiar with your work. I know I'm going to have you give the proper background, but your most recent work is a book called Heart and Mind: The Four Gospel Journey to Radical Transformation. And you know, it it sounds very uh, Christian and benign, but really, there's this is a totally different, unique perspective. Uh, on transformation and the Gospels, because in this book, uh, and we're going to get into this in a few minutes, you not only talk about, obviously, Jesus and the Gospels and the stories that we're all familiar with, but you take them and put them in uh, a specific order, uh, and you you claim uh, that this order is really the path of transformation for for any human being. Correct is is that a, is that a correct uh, interpretation of it, uh, Bob? It is. It's like as I like to say, if something is true, it must be true in a thousand ways. If something is true in only one way, it's far less a truth. And that these gospels are so true because they sit on a great universal. We not only have the reality of Jesus the Christ. But we have a universal pattern of transformation, which is known across the planet. Mm. That's so good. That is so good. So before we jump into the depths of that, tell me who is Alexander Shia and give me your background, your history, because I know that's important to, to set the context for how you arrived where you are today. Can you tell us a little bit about your history and your background, your family? Yeah, so I was born in, in Birmingham, Alabama. I'm a Southern boy. However, uh, my grandparents came to the United States more than 100 years ago uh, carrying my parents in their arms. My parents were, were uh, infants. And so uh, first generation, emotional, second generation, somewhere in there. But uh, I grew up in Birmingham in a really difficult time in, in the U.S. South and a very difficult time in Birmingham where my family was, as the Lebanese were, and the Greeks and Jews and Polish uh, and Italians, we were all hounded by the KKK. Mm, so that literally. The, the word colored in Birmingham, Alabama, did not only refer to our African-American brothers and sisters. And because of the KKK, I had the opportunity to grow up in a Lebanese village in Birmingham, Alabama, that had that was the same way that my family had had lived for almost a thousand years in Lebanon. Wow. So uh, it it gave me the 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 power of that. The gift in that horror was that I got to see the Middle East and I got to see early Christianity because the way my parents had lived in the mountains of Lebanon for a thousand years, they probably had lived that way for two thousand years. And they live by the same ethos and values and way of speaking and way of understanding that would have gone back to the first century and the time of Jesus. So, so what was that like as a child? Um, I, it's, it's interesting. You and I have, have some interesting uh, parallels. Um, I grew up 
I was born in Panama. My dad worked for the government. I've lived in Puerto Rico and Miami. I've grown up all over the world. But there was a four-hour, four, four-year space when we moved back to the states, and I was a very young, young uh, boy in elementary school. And it was during, and I lived in Alabama, and uh-huh. and it was during the uh, busing and the integration. And I remember being bused into. Uh, a black neighborhood school. And my kids asked me, what was that like dad? And I'm like, well, I had very fond memories actually from my perspective as a child. Uh, but I wasn't a person of color. So tell me from your, your experience as you were born here. So you're an American and yet you're viewed and treated as a person of color. I'm sure there wasn't very many Lebanese families in Birmingham, Alabama at that time. Well, no, and when and I was born in 1951, and so I'm really the, by growing up years or the 50s and the and to to uh, the late 60s, and uh, Catholics in Alabama in those years made up one half of one percent, and Lebanese immigrant Catholics I don't even know if it was point zero one percent. We were we were a minority of a minority, mm. and. Um, we must remember that the, that Catholics in Alabama, and I don't know whether this happened across the South, and I rather doubt it, but Catholics in Alabama uh, before World War II went to Mass on Sundays at 4 a.m., and some men from the, uh, from the churches were excused to stand outside to make sure that cars driving back by didn't write down license plates, and then we were back home before sunrise. And, and that's just uh, almost unheard of to, to think that, that that was what was happening, in, at least in Alabama, before World War II. That's just Catholics, not Lebanese specifically. That, right, that's Catholics. Wow. Uh, so, uh, and, and, you know, I, I remember as a child in, in Birmingham, Alabama, that uh, in November there was this Sunday called the Feast of Christ the King, and we Catholics went out to the old Rickwood baseball stadium in those days, and we had a prayer service out there. And I thought this is really a, a, a wonderful thing for, for Catholics to do in this late October Sunday. Well, what I didn't realize was that that started after World War II, and it was Catholics going out to Rookwood Field and saying to the KKK, here we are, and we're not going to be pushed around anymore. It was literally coming out into the daylight. Wow. Wow. So when you say the KKK, was this just a presence that was always there, or was there actually, did you have run-ins, and was your family affected in any way? Oh, yeah. I mean, we had priests shot. We had bur- churches burned, and personally— when I was seven years old, I stood outside my grandmother's home that was in Lebanon, in, in, Le- in Arabic, grandmother is Sitto, my Sitto's home when it was firebombed by the KKK. And you know, the, the KKK never announced that they burn a house, but they did burn it. They had a signature way of burning it. And they would go through the house and gather all the things from a foreign country, in my case, Lebanon, and put those in a pile in the living room. And then on top of that was anything Catholic that they found in the house. And then on top of that were Catholic Bibles. And the last thing on top of the pile was a crucifix. And they would douse that with kerosene. And my Sitto's home was just a, a simple wooden house, and it burned rather quickly. It was totally consumed by flames. Wow. What? I mean, obviously, that was a huge, made a huge impact on you as a young child. What, what were you thinking and feeling, and have you been able to unpack that through the years? I mean, tell me, what, what does that feel like as a young boy? Well, I, what I most remember, Bob, is not that Tuesday night, um, although that, the memories of that are pretty clear, but, but what takes even more space in my heart is the following Sunday. And my family, and even in those days, my family was some 70-odd people. All, all of the family, the tribe, gathered on Sunday for a Sunday lunch in the American South with my grandmother. And that particular Sunday, we were not sitting in her house any longer with her beautiful 
mahogany dining table and all the finery of the tapestries she had brought from Lebanon. We were at my aunt and uncle's home, I believe. Uh, we were in the basement. We were sitting on uh, metal card tables and folding chairs. And in the center of the room was a, a, a table made of wooden planks and wooden charley horses, which is where my, my sitho was and, and all of her children. And as always happened on Sunday, she would say grace before we uh, dug into the food. And on this Sunday, she said grace, but she didn't pick up her fork. And all of us in the room were waiting for her to pick up the fork. And she, in my memory, she looked out over her eyes or her, her, uh, over her nose or her glasses would slip down the bridge of her nose and she would sort of look over them. And she looked around the room and she looked at each one of us just for a few seconds and then to the next and the next and the next. And then finally, very quietly and insistently, she said, no hate, no hate, no hate. Mm. And she changed the whole tenor of our family in those moments. And, uh, and for me as a seven-year-old kid sitting at the back of the room, I could barely see her, but I could feel and hear her voice. Mm-hmm. And I knew that there was something about what she had just done that I wanted to know how you do that and that it was going to be a significant part of my life. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I tell the story because my grandparents could neither read or write. They couldn't read or write Arabic or English. Um, and when I sat on my grandmother's lap, she would not tell folk tales to me. She wouldn't do English literature or uh, any of the things that most other people in the U.S. might have grown up with. What I got from her was she would chant the Gospels to me in a mixture of Aramaic uh, and Arabic. And I assume that this is how the Gospels were taught back in the village in Lebanon to a people who could not read or write. They would memorize them in how they were chanted on Sunday. And, and the chanting is very important because in the Middle East, you, if something is sacred, you never say it. The Jewish people don't speak from the Torah. They chant it. Mm-hmm. And the Islamic people don't speak from the Quran. They chant it. And the same is true for us Christians. Uh, it, to read from a holy text is considered profanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, the text is sacred, and it can't just be spoken. It has a melody. And so I grew up with hearing and feeling the melody with the words of the Gospels coming through my sitho's heartbeat. Mm. And, and in that moment, on that horrible, beautiful Sunday when she said, no hate, no hate, no hate, it, the truth of her life came from her devotion and her faith. It's like she couldn't just say those words on that Sunday because they were words to say. They came out of the fiber of who she was, and the fiber of who she was was a woman steeped in a tremendous lived faith. Mm, that's beautiful. That, so that so I, from, I'm sorry, go ahead. You know, well, and that I felt that as a young child— and then on that Sunday when she spoke those words, I have like, in, in the way that a seven-year-old can understand, I wanted to know, how do you do that? Where is the source of such strength in her? Mm. That's beautiful. So you, so you grew up in that environment. And then I believe, you know, maybe I'm skipping some important things, but you ended up going to Notre Dame, correct? I did. Go Irish. <laughs> um, it, 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 I, I went to Notre Dame in the years where we really knew how to play football. Great education. Oh, yeah. But uh, you know, my, my years at Notre Dame, I think in, in four years at Notre Dame, I saw Notre Dame lose five games. So uh, anyway, great, great years and a tremendous education, which totally um, undid my life and, and rebuilt it. 
talk talk about that for a second. What do you mean it undid your life? Well, so one of the other things about growing up in a Lebanese family in the in the old traditional ways is when when you were born, your father would look at you and give you your name. And usually with that name also came your obligation and your role to the family. Well, when I was born, and as my father would say, he had no intention of naming a son Alexander. But when I was born, he looked at me and he said, he's an Alexander. And what that meant was I come from the the biological line of priests in my village back in Lebanon. And the son, the next, the son who was going to be the next priest in the family line was given the name Alexander and given it with full obligation to take that role. So I had had the privilege of growing up as a, as a son, um, as my, as my brothers will, will, will kid me. Um, I had the privilege of education in, at a, a level that they did not have. Of course, they were born before World War II, and I was born after World War II. And the family fortune had greatly increased through, through by the 50s. But um, I, I was, said that I wanted to go to college. My father finally acquiesced rather than my going directly to seminary after high school. And I wanted to go to Notre Dame, this great Catholic university. But I didn't really know why. But when I got there, what I discovered in my professors and my coursework totally took my beautiful early formation in Christianity, took it apart, and then put it back together. Mm. And all the work that I've done the rest of my life essentially comes from what I discovered at the University of Notre Dame back in the early 70s. And so you ended up not going to seminary then and becoming a priest? Well, well, I I, I did go to seminary. After I graduated from, from Notre Dame, I did go to seminary briefly. And because of what I had been given at Notre Dame, um, seminary was quite dull, um, wasn't feeding me. I felt myself being put into a, a, a straitjacket. It didn't suit me. And I had to make the, the terrible decision to leave mm-hmm. seminary, which fractured the relationship with my father, and we never fully put it back together. Oh. Well, that's had to have been... Uh, obviously hard and heartbreaking on some levels. Um, were you, so you said you never got to put that back together before he passed? We, we, um, I mean, we, we came back together at some level, but growing up, I had been the apple of my father's eye. Um, the great son who is going to continue the family tradition of, of being a priest. And when I left seminary, there was a wound there that never healed, that never fully healed over. Mm-hmm. I remember just a few years, my mom died just two years before my dad, and I gave the eulogy at my mother's funeral. And as I came back down and sat next to my father, he leaned over and he said to me, you know, your mother died disappointed that you didn't become a priest. Wow. Um, that, and that, and I don't mean that my father was a great man. But he had been raised in these traditional values from Lebanon, which I understand. And understanding it helps me understand the Gospels in a way that I don't think I could have. Sure. And sure. you just don't, in the Lebanese tribal traditional life, you do not disobey your father. Yeah, yeah, I understand that. So what did you do then after college? And you went to seminary, you, so you stopped going to seminary, then what? What, what, what were those in-between years, between then and writing your current work? Um, I, I actually, I, I left seminary and then immediately began to work full-time for the Roman Catholic Church um, while I pursued a series of master's degrees, mm-hmm. uh, and then ultimately left full-time work for the Catholic Church in the late 80s as I entered my doctoral program in clinical psychology. I got my doctorate, and then I had a private practice 
private therapy practice as well as working in a Roman Catholic retreat center for many years. And then the next significant thing is the year 2000. And I, and I don't know if we want to tell that story at this moment, but it, it's when this understanding of the Gospels arrived. Well, I, I do, because I think it's important, because uh, what your writings are now and what your work is is so, um, I, I hate to use the word fresh and life-giving, but it is, um, because it's such a unique perspective that um, connects all of humanity together. And so many of us who've brought up in different streams and frameworks of Christianity can relate to it. So I, I want I want you to, to really share that, and let's go deep into that. But I think it's important to, for people to understand how you go from uh, Lebanese, Roman Catholic uh, young kid to going to Notre Dame, working for the Roman Catholic Church, and then all of a sudden in 2000 and that journey that brought you to where you are today. So if you could kind of maybe paraphrase it, but I think it's important for people to know. So um, starting in my in my master's work in the 70s and through the 80s, yeah. Um, I have master's in pastoral counseling and religious education, uh, and uh, through through and, and and just a master's in counseling. I mean, a master's in education. But through that, I was learning that there is a there's a fairly identifiable and somewhat universal pattern about how we grow and transform. Hmm. And this all linked back to my years at Notre Dame when I was sitting in these advanced seminars as a junior and a senior with this little erudite, passionate, crazy guy out in New York um, who was teaching the theology department. And his name was Joseph Campbell. And this was before anybody knew who Joseph Campbell was. I think it was before Joseph Campbell knew who Joseph Campbell was, the great mythologist. Yeah. And 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 Joseph was teaching us that there is one great story that's going on underneath all the world's great stories. It's sort of the architecture of the story, and that the story that every great story has got four parts to it. And he called this the hero and the heroine's journey. And anybody who loves Star Wars or the, or the movie Matrix or how many other films. All of those stories came because the script writers were sitting with Joseph Campbell, and Campbell was teaching them how to tell a great story. Mm. So a great story has got these four parts to it. And the first part is hearing the summons to make a journey. There is a crisis or something that's going on in your life, and you realize that what you have known or been up to this point has to grow. And then secondly... You come into a time of facing tremendous trials and tribulations, ordeals. And then thirdly, in Campbell's language, he called the third part of the story receiving the boon or the gift. Um, I sometimes talk about it as receiving a, a sense of purpose or a vision, and oftentimes with this comes a, 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 comes a feeling of deep peace, maybe joy. And then the fourth part of the great story is you have to return from the time of trial, return back to your community to serve. That, but that by this journey, you've learned something that the people at home need. And so he would talk about and he would take scripture and he would take each gospel and he would take myths from around the world and he would show how underneath he would always say don't look at the window dressing don't get confused uh, by the individual trees look at the pattern of the forest that what's going on underneath all of these stories is this universal pattern of hearing the summons facing trials receiving the gift returning to community to serve and I, and I immediately, in those early days of the 70s, hearing Joseph Campbell say this, began to wonder, is there a connection between his understanding about transformation in four parts and that Christianity had four Christian Gospels? How 
are those two connected? And so I, I uh, went on the search, as my, my parents would say. I was the kid who, when I had a bone, like a dog, I just kept chewing. I, I started chewing on this idea in 1972. And many times over the next 30 years, I thought I had found a thread and I would try to force it, but I had enough integrity, I hope, that that when I felt like I was really forcing the comparison, I would back off. Because I knew that if this fit, if there was a connection, it would come really easily. And it would and and upon seeing it, it would feel self-evident. So in the year 2000, uh, a dear friend of mine handed me a book. And uh, I have to honestly say that in that moment, I thought, oh, no, not another book. Um, and this book was by the Reverend Robin Griffith Jones, who is a theologian and scripture scholar at Oxford and University of Oxford in, in England. Right. And the book is entitled The Four Witnesses. Hmm. And what he does is he's basically, it's a, it's a book for many of us that would cure insomnia. Uh, as, <laughs> as beautiful as the book is, it's some pretty deep waiting. But because he, he's talking Christologically about the names of Jesus in each of the Gospels. But what he does is he opens up each of the four Gospels that he's going to talk about is he tells the history or he summarizes the history of what we think we know about that community at the point that the text was written for them or revealed to them. Hmm. I, and I read his description. He starts with the, with the Gospel of Mark, and I read his description of the Christian Jewish community in Rome that we believe the text was written for, and the hair on my neck, it just, my, my body started to tingle. And I thought, is, is, what, is what I'm seeing? Because what I was reading was something like out of my clinical notes with the patient. I knew, I knew this dilemma in an individual's journey. And, and I said, let me just, Take, let me just put his book aside, and I'm going to open the Bible. And this is the, the, the night of November the 1st, the year 2000, the Feast of All Saints. I'm sitting in the high desert of New Mexico after our hiking all day. And I opened the text of Mark, and I read Mark through what Robin Griffith Jones and my psychological work had given me about this place inside of us. And every word of the text was as if I had never seen those words before. Because hmm. what I understood at that moment was is that Mark was the entire text of Mark is about what Joseph Campbell would call that second step of the journey about facing great trials and obstacles. So then I quickly went back to the ancient reading cycle of the Gospels, which is not the sequence that we find in the Bible. The, the ancient reading sequence is 1st Matthew, 2nd Mark, 3rd John, 4th Luke. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Matthew, and, Mark, Luke, John. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I read Robin Griffith Jones's description of the community, and then I opened the text of that gospel and read it through this universal pattern of transformation and change. And there it was. There, there was no forcing this comparison. It just opened up just like the most beautiful rose. And this whole story changed slightly. It, it clearly is the story of Jesus the Christ. Absolutely. I'm not doing away with that at all. I'm just saying that the ancient church wanted to give us the journey of transformation through the story and the power and the grace of the risen one, Jesus the Christ. So can you so, can you get can you give us like what each 
what are the steps and how does each just kind of high level briefly so people can understand what you're saying and then we'll go deeper into it. So tell us what order from your understanding the gospels come and how they correspond to the hero's journey, the path of transformation, the life journey of humanity. Can you can you do that for us? Okay, so the first gospel in the four sequence is the Gospel of Matthew, um, briefly written to the Jewish Christian community in the great city of Antioch in the days uh, after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and the massacre of the Jewish priesthood. And the community is struggling to understand if they can move forward. And the text of Matthew becomes... The, the, the entire text of Matthew, from the first word to the last word of that text, is how we can face change, how we can begin again and face a moment that we did not expect. Mm. Um, the second gospel in the sequence is Mark, coming from the mid-60s uh, in the great city of Rome. Nero has blamed the Jewish Christians for the burning of Rome and has condemned them to execution. And this gospel text is coming from the Jewish Christians who are locked in their houses waiting for a knock at the door, where they're going to be asked to proclaim their witness to Jesus the Christ. And if they do, they're going to be immediately arrested and taken to the Circus Maximus and executed. Mm. So this entire text, from the first word of Mark to the last word of Mark, is about the, the, the power of resurrection as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Okay. Next, so that's Joseph Campbell's second phase about uh, a moment of great trials and obstacles. Uh, then the third is the Gospel of John. Gospel of John is coming from, we believe, the community of Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus is uh, on the... the uh, coast of what is today Turkey, looking out over the Aegean Sea to Greece. Um, Ephesus is the eastern capital of the Roman Empire, late in the first century. It is fairly affluent. Ephesus is the community which has heard the preaching of Paul about all are one. We are brother and sister to each other, and we are one before our one God. And they have become the face of, of this new religious tradition that we call Christianity, which says we have a door open and we have a table, and we are, we are here willing to pull up another chair and another chair and another chair and another chair. So the, the, the text of Ephesus is about the great joy of a pan-tribal family, and we as Christians know that we are the first tradition on the planet either to do this or to leave a record of it that we are the first tradition to, to not only preach pan-tribalism, but to practice it. Hmm. Hmm, that's interesting. So that's, so you got Matthew, Mark, and John. Right. And then what? And, then, and so and, John is this text of the new gift, the boon, as Joseph Campbell would say. And then we have Luke and Acts which is the text of, okay, now you've been on this journey, you've gone, you've heard the summons, you've gone through the trials, you've received the deep new gift, the deep new revelation, now how are you going to live it out? And so now comes the text of Luke-Acts. Luke-Acts written as a book, much like Paul's writing, to be carried around all the Mediterranean to the new Christian communities because there's something that's happened in the mid-80s of the first century, our Jewish mother has said to us, if you believe that the Messiah has already come, you must leave us. We no longer consider you part of the household of Judaism. And secondly, because the emperor now understands that we have been removed from Judaism, he sees us as a new zealous religion that he fears, because the emperor doesn't like creativity and vitality. He knows how to work and pull the chains of all the other religions. But this religion is, is freaking him out a little bit because we're out there saying to everybody, you're brothers and sisters of each other. And this is not what the emperor wants. The emperor wants the eastern provinces and the western provinces to be each other's throats. Because when we're squabbling with each other, it leaves his army at peace. Anyway, the, the text of Luke becomes a text. It's one of the world's first great texts of nonviolent resistance. 
Um, te- teaching us how to how to be evangelical, but understanding that evangelical means that we will accept people not understanding and people not approving, and we will not put a sword at their heart or at their throat, but we will do the slow, patient work of changing the culture, one heart, one heart, one heart, one heart, one heart. And for us Christians, it took us 225 years before we changed the Roman Empire. But we were willing to do it by the slow work of conversion rather than any way legislating it. Mm, that's so good. So your book, Heart and Mind, The Four Gospel Journey for Trans- Radical Transformation, goes into these four steps in detail and why it's important that you understand and read the Gospels in those order uh, and, and and it appears to me from what I've read of your work, and correct me if I'm wrong, Alexander, So, uh, but my interpretation is that you not only approach the Gospels from a um, historical and, and, and traditional perspective, but even bigger, maybe equal and even bigger is that they are written in this way and, and they are given to us. There's, it's not just four stories four different perspectives of the same story as we've been taught, but actually they are four different and unique steps and paths that one must go through. And so there's a universal archetypal and almost mythological perspective of those gospels while simultaneously a historical account of, a, of the real Jesus. Is that, is that accurate? How you, pers- how you yeah. interpret that? Yeah. Absolutely, Bob, and it's it's what's so exciting to me um, and what drives my passion because, yes, we have the historical Jesus here, no questioning that, but the way the stories were told was to bring that, that reality into every present moment nowness so that that when the community in Antioch was wrestling with, can we go forward after the loss of the temple and the priesthood, the text is the, is bringing all the teachings of Jesus about how you face change. I mean, that's what's organizing the text. The text is in no way organized simply on the biography of Jesus, but it's organized. We want to know the teaching of Jesus right now in this moment about how we face change. And that teaching is as fresh today as it was 2,000 years ago. You want to know how through the power of death and resurrection you can face a moment of change in your life, especially when you feel despairing and perhaps deeply betrayed. Matthew brings forward all the notes of betrayal from the life of Jesus, not for us to cast aspersion back then, but to understand that one of the things that stops us in our moving forward is when we get caught by the deep feelings of betrayal, either that others have betrayed us or in those ways sometimes that we feel that we have been the betrayer. And in the text of Matthew, Jesus the Christ is teaching us how not to pull back from that feeling, but by that that power to live through it and to release it and to assume a larger journey. Anyway. Yeah, that's good. So um, can I back up just a step and say I, I, what I hear you saying is that you're talking more of a – uh, you know, in the, theological terms, it's theosis for, you know, there's other ways. I know Richard Rohr talks about, you know, the universal Christ and that, you know, his next book that's coming out is about, um, you know, Christ and Jesus are two different things. Um, Jesus was, was the Christ and was part of the Christ, but the Christ incorporates all of creation and um, the revel- the full revelation of God. And I know that's, I believe that's what I hear you coming from, but why is it so important? Because I think this is the key, especially for Protestants and especially for evangelicals many times. I think what we get hung up on, and this was such a, a revolution in my own heart, in my own and walk of faith, is that when you don't have a Jesus-centric hermeneutic uh, and a Christ-centric hermeneutic, then Scripture becomes the Word of God rather than Jesus becoming the living Word of God. And the Bible, can you can have and make the Bible say 
any almost anything because scriptures have it, it can it can seem to say it condones slavery. It can seem to say it condones murder of children. It can seem to say it does all kinds of things. So therefore, you get into these discussions and arguments, and you say, "Oh, isn't this wonderful? And isn't this the way Jesus tells us to live?" And then the next person says, "Yeah, but you got to understand it also says this, and so it doesn't cancel each other out." And I find that a Jesus-centric hermeneutic, meaning interpreting all of Scripture through the lens of Jesus, uh, and specifically the Christ, uh, supersedes all other things in Scripture uh, and puts them in their proper perspective. What, what would you say to that? Well, we're singing the same song, brother. Um, and and uh, I, I love Richard Rohr's work, and I actually uh, must admit that I've stopped reading Richard because I don't want to be accused of plagiarism. Our work is... <laughs> uh, but this piece about the Christ and Jesus is so critically important, and I'm excited that Richard's book is coming out shortly. And this is what you will see if you read in my book and you read the Gospel of John in my book I'm, I'm trying to describe. I think, I think the best way to understand this might be to give people an image. And this image comes from the 5th and the 6th century icons of creation. And in those icons of creation, you see up in the corner, you see this figure of an old man with hair, gray hair and puffy cheeks. And out of the mouth are coming these rays. And the, these, these rays might be described as either words or breath. And standing in front of this, this uh, puffy-cheeked old man, in my language, breathing out, is a figure of the Christ with arms outstretched. And coming out of the Christ is the cosmos. All of creation is flowing out of the body of the Christ. So as Richard Warb has said, and I will also say, the first incarnation of our God into physical matter is the cosmos. Mm. And the second full incarnation of our God is Jesus, the Christ, which is also everything that we learn about the cosmos we find in Jesus, and everything we find in Jesus we find in the cosmos. That Jesus is the final manifestation of the deepest truth that God breathed out before the first moment of time. So, so therefore, these two great incarnations of God must agree with each other. There, there's, there's no difference between great science and great theology. Right. If we understand that science is also discovering the mysteries of who God is. Mm, that's good. And therefore, go ahead. Well, so I, I like to go back and as an anthropologist, which was my first degree at Notre Dame, um, I learned a lot of things in anthropology that, that really helped me do research, especially cultural research. And one of the things that an anthropologist knows is if you want to research another culture or you want to research a culture back in time, well, yeah, of course, you read the documents, but you always understand that what a people most deeply know, they cannot tell you because it is assumed. And this is what most of our, our scholars have forgotten when we look back at early Christian documentation. They're looking for verification in documents. That's a very poor way to verify because the people writing didn't know to tell you. A better place to look for verification of what people believed is what they do in worship. What you sing and what you pray in worship is much closer to greater truth than what you write in a, in a, in a document. And when we look back at the early baptismal rites and we look at what the community was doing when someone was baptized— when they brought a person up out of the waters, the community would chant that person's first name, followed by one of two phrases, a Christ or in Christ. Mm, that's so which, good. Is really, which is really interesting because 
I'm not denying Jesus, but I'm but I'm but I am telling you that the basis of our tradition is Christian, of which Jesus is the fullness. But we go through Jesus to the fullness, mm. not the other way around. And that Paul gave us the name Christian because we are the people of an eternal truth since before the first moment of time. So that Jesus confirms history back before he was born and confirms history forward before he was born. But we don't look for for the truth only in those 33 years. That's so good. Yeah, yeah, I know. I, I hate to keep quoting Richard War, but one of the things he says is that you know, we have we have we have this book that's, you know, a few thousand years old. Uh, and yet we look at creation and depending on what you believe scientifically or not, uh, it could be as old as 15 billion years, 15 billion years. Well, do you think Jesus, you know, think God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit were sitting on their hands doing nothing that whole time? And it, he only he only came and spoke to us a few thousand years ago. Of course not. Um, you know, even even Paul writes or whoever did write Romans uh, talks about, you know, that the full revelation of God and everything that you need to know about is 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 told in the creation in the cosmos. It's there to see and understand. Okay. Uh, yes. And that that's the Christ. Right. And that is why we are Christians rather than only Yehudians. Well, yeah, just Jesus. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Why, why do you think that? Why do you think now? I was you were brought up in a Roman Catholic uh, kind of framework. I was brought up in an evangelical framework. Uh, but why do you think it is, especially for Protestants? Why is that so hard for us to grasp? And why do people call that heretical? That to me, it's a much higher view of Jesus. It's a much higher view of Jesus the Christ, and yet people will accuse you of uh, universalism. They will accuse you of you know, her- heresy, and when you say not all Scripture is equal because Jesus is the living Word, they will accuse you. They will accuse you of heresy. What What is it that's in us that has a real problem with what you're saying, uh, Bob? It, it's it's the fact that um, uh, how how do I how to say this? Because I, I recognize it in me as well. It's like. I thought as I grew older that I was going to welcome change, that I would become more easy with change. Uh, I find that I really have to to um, ask for the grace to constantly grow. We, we find things earlier in life that fit, and we sort of get a moment of ease or comfort, and we say, well, that's, that's good enough for now, and it's probably good enough for the rest of time. We, we stop growing. And it's just it's a natural human inclination or, or an easy human inclination that we constantly have to guard against. Mm. Mm. And the, I wanna, there, there's a great gospel passage uh, from John, which is so important in the early Christian church use this passage from John in the early days of Lent every year because Lent was, and, and I love that the, the ancient Lent didn't start with the rite of ashes, which so many people are going to celebrate this week. The ancient uh, Lent started with what was called a rite of election, where we recognize that God has elected the cosmos uh, as a part of God's very self from the first moment of time. And that we celebrate um, our saying yes to God's presence within us. That's what election means. It's not mm-hmm. writing down on a ballot. And that in, in the midst of doing that, the bishop or the head of the community would lay down his symbol of authority, which was his staff. He would lay it down and he would step back with the community and they would say that as we enter Lent, our theologians don't know. Your church leaders don't know. The baptized don't know. We all don't know. We stand now before God in this holy season asking God, teach us again. Teach us Teach us greater. Well, 
this all this started the the first text that the community would wrestle with and as we start Lent is the text of Jesus and Nicodemus. Because here is Nicodemus who is the good he's my good seminary professor. He's my he's my my parents. He's all the good people I've known in my life who have taught me of their goodness and they've also taught me of their blindness. Not intentionally, but they did. And so we must take time to ask God to help us see again, to help us see larger, to help us understand more. That Nicodemus is the sad figure of natural law because he thinks that God set laws down which are not going to change over time. And the basic thing that God set down is change and growth. Mm. So, yeah, the, the, the values aren't going to change, but the way that we understand them, the way we act on them, is going to grow as we grow. Yeah, that's so good. And it, that's so much, so more compelling and beautiful and inviting. You know, as Protestants, we boiled it down to, you know, the magic prayer. And that's that our, all of Christianity boils down to whether you're in or out based on, you know, saying you believe and accept Jesus. And once you do that, then you're in uh, and you've got your insurance for the afterlife. And then you just try to endure until then. That that is not the good news. And it's so, so not compelling. And we wonder why no one is interested in that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And what the early what our earliest ancestors gave us was this incredible journey of transformation that we make with Jesus that will be the way that we resolve new questions in every age, in every century. They're going to be new questions, and we're going to have to go back through the Spirit to Jesus the Christ and say, teach us larger, teach us deeper, teach us wider. Yes, yeah, and that's scary because it means that you have to expand your borders, you have to tear down your walls, and you have to be inclusive of people that you consider out of and not part of uh, the family. And I think God is always pushing us to wider borders and deeper and being more inclusive. And to me, that that's what Jesus exemplified, right? Well, it is. And, and to go back just for a moment to Nicodemus, this whole discussion between Jesus and Nicodemus is about bloodline tribalism. You know, Nicodemus is saying to Jesus, look, Jesus, we know that God has given the favor to know God through Yahweh to the Jewish people because we have we have the mud of but we have the blood of a Jewish mother in us. Mm. How can you give this message to those pagans, to those pagans and those other people? You're throwing our privilege away and we know natural law, Jesus, and the natural law is only if you have Jewish blood, can you have the privilege of knowing Yahweh? Essentially, Nicodemus is challenging Jesus. He's saying, once a person is born, Jesus, you can't put them back in a Jewish mother and give them Jewish blood. That's what that whole discussion is. And, and Jesus then retorts to Nicodemus, you don't know where the wind comes from, which is... The same retort to everyone who wants to rely on natural law. The natural law is God is growing us wider and deeper. God is changing us. God's not changing, but God's changing us. Thank God God is changing us. That is so good. Um, One of the things you talk about, which I think is so interesting, and it's so true, is talk talk to me briefly about this idea of in moving forward, there will always be a betrayal. Talk about that. You know, I, I, I psychologically, I, I know it's a psychological truth. I see it in my life and in the life of others. Um, it's one of those things, why God, why did you put that in our path? Um, it is one of the ways that we are most challenged to grow. And again, I'll give you the, the great story from the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, 
It's right at the moment of Jesus' arrest. And Jesus has just named to the disciples that the betrayer is at hand. And the betrayer comes and kisses Jesus. And Jesus lets him be kissed, lets himself be kissed. And then Jesus looks at the betrayer and says, Friend, do what you have come to do. And I don't know why we're made this way, but I know that every great spiritual journey for us as adults starts with when we look at the wound, when we look at the pain of the betrayal, and say, not that God created this, but that God can use this for me to grow. And so not because it's right or wrong, I can look at the betrayal and by the power of Jesus the Christ, because my ego wants none of this, but by the power of Jesus the Christ, I too can look at that and say, do what you have come to do with me. And I love the next line in, in the text is, and then they came and arrested Jesus. And this is exactly what we, we will feel like we are bound and arrested as we try to use the betrayal for our growth. Now, there, there are courts of law and, and church courts for all the righting and wronging. That's not what this moment is about. This moment is about what we are spiritually going to do. Are we spiritually going to use this to allow God to help us grow? So, so give, give, give a practical example of that. Like, okay, that's the Jesus story. That's, that's what we understand in the gospel that happened. But now take that, take that archetype, take that metaphor, and uh, apply it to a practical example in, in your own life, for example. Well, in my, my own life, when, when I, I, I was paralyzed in seminary, I was actually becoming suicidal because I, I felt I had to leave seminary, and I knew that that was going to be an enormous betrayal of my father. Mm-hmm. And not only my father, my family, the family, the, the, the lineage. Like you, every, my whole life had been about how I was obligated to honor the lineage. And yet in this moment, um, for me to go against that was an enormous betrayal. Um, I can also talk about, and I, I don't want to be salacious and, and, and titillating, but as a, as, a, as a person who worked full-time for the Roman Catholic Church, um, the sexual abuse upon people working for the church, the sexual, sexual harassment and, a, and direct abuse that I received at the hands of my superiors, uh, um, that I could, I could use that to become angry at church, or I can stand at that moment and say, take me deeper, God. Mm-hmm. That's so I, hope I, I hope I've done the latter. Yes. I don't, I don't expect perfection from government and institutions and even church traditions. I understand that through them, my God becomes more present to me and helps me make a, a larger journey. In, in closing, because um, this has been so good and we could go on for hours, but I do want you to, I do want to touch, <laughs> I do want to touch on this one thing because I think it's so helpful. Um, and it, how, how has your view of, of, of God, of humanity, of the afterlife changed? Do you still see people as Christians and non-Christians? Do you see them as in or out? Do you see them as those that are, pagans and non-believers and those that are going to heaven and those that are going to hell or do you have have you grown and you have a much wider vision talk to me how do you see people now i'm going to go back to the great definition of church that was given in the second vatican council of the roman catholic church in the 1960s in the document called lumen gentia where we as catholics said church is everyone who believes there's a higher power that calls us to live accountable to that power and accountable to our actions with each other. Mm. That's so good. With that definition, I would say only some sort of totalitarian government would set itself up as the highest power 
would be outside of church. Everyone who responds to love, everyone who responds to the desire for justice and forgiveness and reconciliation, all of that is the name of our God. And I am a disciple of Jesus the Christ because Jesus the Christ is, for me, the deepest teaching of who our God is. You know, my my recovering conservative brain is keeps keeps screaming. But what about John fourteen six? Jesus said he was the only way to the Father. And and I, I know what you're gonna say and I have I, I think I understand that in a much deeper way. But explain to those who are listening to this saying, you know, I don't know. I don't know. It sounds like you're saying that, you know, all roads all paths lead to God. What how would you respond to someone like that? Um I'll stand in the tradition of Raymond Brown and Donald Senor and all the great theologians and scripture scholars on the Gospel of John, that everything that John wants to say he put into the prologue, and the rest of the text is details. And the prologue clearly names that God has put God's self into every cell of the cosmos. That's what the logos means. Yeah. That and that that and and that we only get to the discussion of Jesus in the fourth stanza of the prologue. That that the I am is the God of every is is the I am of the breath of God that's in every cell of the cosmos, that's in every human person that is across all time, all culture, all peoples, both past and to come. Mm. Now that is the great I am. So. I can move through that to understand when the church says you must give assent and live that there's a higher power that calls you into being and that that higher power calls you to live accountably with each other. That's the great I am. Yes. And and Jesus the Christ is the full messenger of that great I am. But everyone who is on the way to a deep understanding of love, reconciliation, justice, freedom, all of that, part of the great I am. Yeah. That, anyway. That's good. That is so good. And I also, I, I've got I put one, one more piece, Bob, because people yeah. just don't get this, but the word world in John is not matter. John has already said in the prologue that matter is filled with the Spirit of God. Yes. The word world in John is ignorance. Mm. God so sent his son into our unawareness, into our ignorance, that our that by our ignorance we may not be condemned, but we may come alive with the great I am. Mm. So rich, so freeing. That's so good. Well, well, Alexander, thank you so much. I, I hate to leave on such an up note because we could go deeper and further, but I know your time's valuable. And I, I just want to say that, um, first of all, I want to encourage people to go and, and get your book and read it. Um, I know uh, Heart and Mind, The Four Gospel Journey for Radical Transformation is available on Amazon. I know, I, are you working on anything new? Do you have anything new coming out since that book? Well, yeah, in first, the, the book is both in print and on Kindle. Okay, great. And, and I have a, a more recent book that came out this past year called Returning from Camino. It's about um, how to think about and prepare for returning from pilgrimage, the Camino Express Link. Um, wow. This year, I'm working on a book about the 13 days of Christmas. But I, I also want to invite people, please go to my website, which is www.quadratos.com. And, and you'll, you'll find this podcast there shortly. You'll find a whole manner of other podcast interviews that I've done. Um, you'll also find films that have been done by the work of the people um, with yep. Presenting on the on 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 the four gospel journey, etc. There's just an enormous amount of of wealth of resources on that website, which is quadratus q u a d r a t o s dot com. Thank you so much, Alexander, and I appreciate uh, your work. I appreciate your heart. I appreciate your willingness to 
to just what I love about you is that you're just so open to speak to anyone, anywhere. Um, you, your humbleness and your Christ likeness comes through. So thank you for that. You'd be affirmed in that. And, um, you know, blessings on your continued work. And this is a message that that needs to be heard. Uh, there are people across the world that are waking up to this that have said, including myself, um, I want to keep growing. I want to continue on this journey. Um, I can't be stuck uh, in, in where I was 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago uh, because, um, you know, the divine, the spirit, Jesus is ever, ever alive and expanding and growing and working. And I want to I want to just join join him in that. So thank you for reminding us of that. And thank you for pushing us toward that. Bob, amen. Thank you. And please keep letting people know there's a rumor of grace. (laughs) Despite what they may have heard. (laughs) Despite what they may have heard. Absolutely. Awesome. Thank you so much. Blessings. Blessings, brother. Take care.